Welcome to Emerge, the health podcast for busy, high-performing women. Each week, we feature interviews, information, and inspiration that will motivate you to transform from overwhelmed, overworked, and overweight to vibrant, energetic, and on fire. My name is Dr. Alex Swenson-Ridley, selfless syndrome expert, board-certified women's health coach, and alternative medicine practitioner, wife, mom, and entrepreneur. I specialize in health for busy and driven women. Listen weekly as I share the tools, perspective, and knowledge you need to lose weight, boost your energy, and fall in love with yourself so that you can serve the world with an even bigger impact. Hello, welcome back to Emerge, the health podcast for busy, high-performing women. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Swenson-Ridley, and I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Don Delili, who is a naturopathic physician and functions in a very similar wheelhouse to me and what I talk about. So Don, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So I um, were, like I said, trying a new thing. So I'll have you just kind of introduce yourself a little bit and tell us kind of how you got into doing what you do and then... We'll go from there. I know we're going to have a fun conversation. So yeah. Okay. I'll give you the short version. Um, I am a naturopath. I practice in Missoula, Montana, but I'm completely telemedicine. So I serve people all around Montana and, um, you know, in the client rather than the patient role, women all around the country. I, um, I guess I became a naturopath because I, I grew up in a family of function. I mean, of conventional medical doctors and really I mean, I spent the first 15 to 20 years of my life thinking like that was the only path. And then there was a day that I woke up and went, I have no idea why, but I know that it's not this. Um, I felt a little lost for the next five or six years of my life. Um, But then one day I heard the word naturopath and I literally, I was living in San Francisco at the time. I went home, I looked it up online And I cried to my roommates because I was like, oh my gosh, there's a medical school for people like me, people who are interested in health and wellness and vitality and not just disease management. And I have been pointed down that path ever since. And then, um, you know, since, since getting into practice, I've sort of become even more focused, especially on this hormonal piece and then on the mental emotional influence of health, because you know, you might be able to relate to this from your own medical training, but I I found that in naturopathic school, we gave a lot of lip service to the idea of mind, body, spirit healing, but I learned a tremendous amount about bodies and physiology and pathology and biochemistry and not a ton about the mental, emotional piece. But when I got into practice, I found that, you know, I was working with humans, not textbooks And it required me to do a lot more study around eating psychology, neuro-linguistic programming, and even coaching tools so that I could help my patients to make the changes that they were really longing for rather than just approaching them with more information. Absolutely. And I know that's kind of going to be some of the direction that our discussion takes today, because I think it's such a missing and even in my own practice, you know, I have a similar journey of kind of getting into the hormone world more, but it's, it's not about like, take this supplement. Like there's, there's a lot of work we need to do. And I've I actually spent the weekend kind of diving into emotions and how they show up in our body and, you know, certain organs and systems that are affected by different emotions. Cause they're a huge, huge piece of the pie and one that we don't take time for. And a lot of very lot true. Of, right. Yeah. Especially busy women, right. We have, yeah. we have a long <laughs> list of things to do. And a lot of times feeling the feels doesn't yeah. make the to-do list. 
no, because who's got time for that? And yeah. Yeah. So let's, um, let's just go ahead and dive into this conversation. You know, we, and we could maybe start by setting up, like, obviously we have hormones, right? I talked about them a lot on the show and they start to, there's a lot of different things that can cause them to be unbalanced and we can maybe hit some of those and then dive into like more of this nuanced, what emotions do we need to start really processing and dealing with? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, okay. So I'll work off of the assumption that your general listener knows we have hormones, right? Hormones govern as close to everything about everything within the body that you can imagine. So I would say that for a lot of my patients, when they come to me and they say, my hormones are out of balance, I, I did 99% of them are thinking they're reproductive hormones. And I do like to take a step back and say, you know, let's recognize that, you know, all of your functions are governed by hormones. So your hunger and your mood and your energy, you know, like all of this is hormonal as much as your cycles, you know, so PMS is not the only sign of hormonal imbalance. I'm often trying to tell women that, you know, having an anxiety ridden response to something at work is likely hormonally driven, having um, like needing to have nuts in your purse all the time, because you can't go more than two hours without risking hanger is a hormonal imbalance. And so, you know, like I said, a lot of times, even though people know this idea that there are hormones and that my hormones might be out of balance, that, that has a very narrow picture. And so I do like to make sure that we're talking, like when I say I help women with hormonal imbalance, it's as much about their stress and anxiety and mood and, you know, joy or lack of joy and their hunger and their appetite and their weight as, as much as, you know, PMS or hot flashes or libido. So what gets things out? Like what makes a hormone out of balance? You know, I, I mean, I think the simplest answer though, it's such a, um, it's, it's not really an answer is to say life, you know, like our modern lives are very disruptive to our sense of humanity you know, humans are the only animal in the world that will willfully sleep deprive. You know, every other animal will get sufficient amounts of sleep and nap readily and humans sort of wear their sleep deprivation as a badge. That's definitely one thing. You know, we eat foods that are chemically processed and artificially derived. Of course, that's another thing. But I mean, I'd say most of the people who come to me, right? Like they already know, like I need to eat a whole foods diet. And so like, I'm not going to talk to your audience about whole foods diets. Um, I think the the real piece, right, is stress. That stress is another thing that we wear like a badge of honor. Our to-do lists are so long and they're so demanding. And our expectations for ourselves are so high that I think our adrenals are on overdrive all the time. And then we get to this point where our bodies are not functioning and we're not able to meet our demands. And that's the first cue that we use to rest. And so I think you'd probably agree that most of us get whispers of imbalance all along the way and we ignore them. And then all of a sudden our body is screaming at us and we cannot afford to ignore them anymore. And that's the first time that we're like, Oh, what do you know? Like I have to pay attention to you as well. Um, and so if we can learn to listen to the whisper, then we don't have the miserable anxiety and the hot flashes and the PMS that leaves us doubled over either, you know, in tears or clutching a warm water bottle. Yeah, absolutely. I, 
am 100% on board with you with all of those things. And, you know, recognizing like when we hit the point that you're talking about and I talk about it's, and I got hit with this probably five years ago, it literally felt like, you know, the emergency stop button got pushed on a treadmill and I literally like was completely dysfunctional. And so part of my goal and, you know, talking about this is for our listeners to not have to hit that point. But if you're there, we're also here for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's never too late. You know, it's like the remarkable yeah. thing about the human body is that it has a tremendous capacity to rebalance. Yes, it does. And we have to be willing to create the environment and take the time, which, you know, that's one of the conversations I have with a lot of women is I just don't have time. Mm-hmm. Great. Make yeah, time. <laughs> it's true, right? We, we yeah. do say we don't have time, but when somebody says it to me, then I often ask, um, what other choice do you have? Really? And sometimes I think, especially with high-performing women, it sounds really harsh. It can, it can seem callous. But I do think that part of my job is helping you recognize what you're pointed at if you don't take the time to rebalance now. You know, like imagining your three year future, your five year future, if you continue along a trajectory, um, not of continuous progress with your hormones, but of accelerating progress with your hormones becoming imbalanced. Yeah. Absolutely. And I know I find, and maybe we can talk about some of the mindset piece around this. Like I actually, that's a, a question on my intake is, you know, where do you see yourself in three to five years, if nothing were to change? And I get a lot of either, I don't know, or like really short answers. Cause I think it's scary to think about, and we don't want to take time to go there. Like, but the reality is, you know, we have to be willing to look into <laughs> that future that is either an abyss of, you know, not feeling well or, making a turn and doing something different. Um, and yeah. so maybe we can use that as, as a launch point around, you know, some of the emotional component that goes into this. Um, yeah, sure. You know, um, it, it's interesting because I get the same short answers, right? Like I actually don't even ask the question in an in intake form anymore. I find that it, it takes the conversation to one, draw out the answer, but two, I think, um, to give someone permission to not know and then to wonder and to think. You know, I imagine that, you know, the woman who is high achieving, she's high pursuing, she's ambitious, like her whole identity is built around having a degree of expertise. And to venture into the parts of your life in which you don't have command is very intimidating. And I think, you know, like to recognize that part of the reason why you don't know, and and, and I'm not speaking to you, Dr. Alice, but, you know, to the listener, part of the reason why you don't know, I think is simply because there's a part of you that is protecting yourself from the discomfort of being in that curious place where there aren't really concrete answers. And I think that one of the ways like, you know, to kind of loop back to how is it that our hormones get out of balance? I think that a thing worth mentioning is that we are taught from very early parts of our lives that expertise lies outside of us. So when we're very young, it's like, listen to your elders, listen to your teachers, listen to the doctor. If somebody doesn't have a white coat or initials behind their name, then they're not considered as credible. 
what we are never taught, or I think very few of us are taught, is that there may be some expertise inside of us. We are rarely taught to self-reflect as a way of cultivating knowledge and answers. Um, I think that, you know, this is really apparent in diet culture. So as most of us know, you know, for decades, we were told eat less, eat a low fat diet and exercise more. And that is the key to weight loss. And even though many of us, myself included, tried it and tried it and tried it and failed and failed and failed. And everyone that I knew around me failed. I was so rooted in this idea that experts held answers that I did not have, that I was more likely to make myself wrong, to feel flawed and to continue to try the thing that wasn't working. Never did I say, wow, I keep trying this thing. Maybe it doesn't work rather than I don't work. And I think that's one of the ways that we get to this place where then here you are saying, well, what do you think is going to happen if this doesn't change? And someone's like, I don't know. An expert hasn't told me, right? No one ever told me that my personal experience of feeling, of thinking, of being was enough to be guidance in my life. And so when we look at that mental, emotional piece, one of my jobs, I think, as a practitioner is to help somebody to reclaim the seat of expert in their own life, but it's not difficult. I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing to accomplish. Yeah, it's really not. And, you know, a big part of it, I think it's tapping as women. I think we're better at this than men. I'm just going to throw that out there, but it's, it's allowing ourselves to be guided by that intuition, you know, the women's intuition. And we talk about it like with our kids with, I've, I've shared stories of when I didn't listen to my intuition, (laughs) you know, made mistakes like buying a half million dollar building that I didn't really need (laughs) to the point of, and we all have this, right. And, but so much of it is, and you bring up a really valid point. I think we tend to look outside of ourselves. It's like, you know, looking for the next pill or the next diet or the next thing. But in doing that, we're literally repeating the loop of insanity, right? We keep, you know, doing the same thing, looking for different results or expecting different results. And it just, it doesn't work. And so, so much of it is about going within um, and learning to trust ourselves again. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and um, I think, you know, with, with my patients, I'm often kind of coaching them through that process, right? Because I, I mean, I would imagine you get it, but I get it. Where do I even start? What does that mean, you know, to connect to myself within? And so I often use food as a tool and mostly that's because everybody eats, you know, um, I think that it's like the double-edged sword, right? With, uh, and, and I'm not trying to minimize um, other addictions in in any way or or the difficulty in overcoming them. But I would say that when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to cigarettes, when it comes to substances, people have, yeah, you might say a luxury of exploring abstinence as a solution. But when it comes to food, at some point, even if you fast, even if you do extended fasting, at some point you need to eat. And so it's an unavoidable aspect of life which is why I think it's the perfect territory to really look at what do I think? What do I feel? What comes up for me? And, you know, in order to help people explore that, there are a couple of tools that I use. And, you know, one is to tell people to eat without distraction. 
You know, if I can get my patients to close their computers, turn off Netflix or, you know, whatever's on the television to put their phone down so that they're not scrolling social media. And by all means, like you're not driving, you know, like all of those things that people typically do, because again, like we're talking about busy women. And if there is not enough of a prioritization of self, then I'm going to sneak my meal in, you know, while I respond to four emails, while I edit this page, while I do whatever it is that I'm going to do. And so I say, okay, step one, eat without distraction. When you're eating, you're doing nothing other than eating so that you have the chance to notice how your body responds to something, you know, feel the sensation. And the sensation is both of the food, you know, like, when did I have enough? Is this satisfying? Do I even like what I'm eating? Gosh, the number of people who are like, wow, I never noticed because I was so busy doing the other thing, you know, and microwave popcorn, I think is one of those foods, right? The number of women who tell me that they eat microwave popcorn while, you know, scrolling social media and watching a movie at night, it's like, it's a really high percentage. And then I say, okay, well, can you eat the microwave popcorn without doing anything else? And they go, oh my gosh, I didn't even notice. Like this stuff's kind of disgusting, <laughs> you know? but I was paying attention to all the other things. And so again, eating without distraction is a means of paying attention. And then the next thing that I ask people to do is to slow down. We eat so fast. Again, like we think of the rest of our lives as being so important that we have to get back to them, that we sort of race through the process. And so I say, if you can just slow down. So the first time you eat lunch or eat dinner, just time it, no judgment, but kind of get a sense like, okay, it's 1203. I'm going to eat my lunch. Now it's 1215. Wow. Okay. It took me 12 minutes to eat lunch. So then the next day, can I stretch that out to 15 minutes? you know, eat there for a couple of days. The next, can I stretch that out to 18 minutes? Can I stretch it out to 20 minutes so that I'm giving my, my body and my brain a little bit more time to communicate. And again, the communication is not just your response to the food. The communication is all of the feelings that come up that say, I don't have time for this. I have other things to do. I'm not worthy, right? Like it's usually some version of I'm not worthy because if all of my worthiness is wrapped up into what I do, what I accomplish by the end of the day or some performance metric, then I feel like I am compromising my worthiness to take time to actually nourish myself. And so I do want to encourage the listener, you know, yes, you are listening to your appetite changing and your desire and your digestion, but you're, this is also an avenue for you to hear all of the voices that are typically getting in the way. And so slowing down, eating without distraction. And then the other piece of that, and it's, it's really simple, but I swear it's not easy is to sit down every time you eat. Like if, if you're just, if you could put it on a plate, set it at the table and sit down, that is something that really disrupts a lot of the autopilot, you know, activity in our life, because we're standing at the fridge or the pantry. And again, it's that racing around. We just want to disrupt that health and wellness and investing in ourselves is something that like we squeeze into the margins. And instead we actually carve out some dedicated space and time to do it. And so that for me is like the avenue into the mental, emotional pieces around health, because it brings to the surface, all of those conversations around like what really defines my worth in the world. That's really good. 
and incredibly true on so many levels. And, you know, I know I have many thoughts listening to this, but like, I am chronically guilty of, I eat slowly. I chew my food. And that's, that's another thing is if you're going to put your focus on one thing, it's like, how many times do you chew a bite? You know, my husband like inhales his food and hasn't <laughs> listened to me yet on this, but you know, and so he jokes, he watches, spends much of our marriage watching me eat, but I'm like, yeah, I'm going to take my time. However, I, we're not really great at sitting at the table. So that, you know, that's an area that I think, and like starting this, pick something that's going to pick one. be easy to, you don't have to do it all perfectly. And that's the other, maybe we can talk about this. Cause I talked to busy high-performing women is like that need for perfection in making changes and starting to have yourself show up in your life and giving up when it doesn't look perfect. Or yeah, that's a, oh, that's a, <laughs> such a great um, area of exploration. And, you know, I did this, um, I did a year long training with Mark David, who runs the Institute for the Psychology of Eating. And he talks about perfection as an invitation for self-abuse. And I think that's a really, I mean, yeah, like talk yeah. about a stab <laughs> in the gut. I thought your facial expressions <laughs> sort of tightened as I said it. But, but when we really think about it, right, that has a lot of merit because perfection by its very definition is a bit unattainable. And so to commit ourselves to pursue something that is unattainable means that we're setting ourselves up to always fall short. Hence the invitation to self-abuse, you know, because then I'm beating myself up. The other really fascinating thing about perfection, and I think that a lot of high-performing women find this really confronting, is that I think that perfectionism is as much an invitation to self-abuse as it is um, a safety mechanism. Like if I tell myself that I shouldn't do it unless it's going to be perfect, then I never have to try. I never have to sit in the discomfort of learning. I never have to sit like in the seat of the student. I just get to kind of push it off and go, oh, no, I'm just going to focus all of my attention on what I'm already good at. And you'd mentioned, you know, when we were talking before we started recording, even eight-year-old, I have a 12-year-old. So I often say to him, and, and then I try to remind myself, if you only spend the rest of your life doing what you're already good at, you're going to have a very boring life. And so let this be a playground to sit into some of the things that you're not already good at, even if it's something as basic as eating a particular way or moving a particular way or catching your thinking in a particular way, because what else are you going to do with your time on earth? (laughs) You know, you might as well have a little fun and, and, and explore some of, some of this with a sense of play. But I do think, um, you know, most people need a little bit more than, than that in terms of like, what is a concrete tool to sort of like work through my relationship with perfectionism and, um, and two things come to mind. One is looking at like, where did I learn that I was supposed to be perfect? Like whose story is it? And you know, like I, I like to come back to this idea of positive intention, you know, like you have a positive intention in protecting yourself from what you don't know or looking stupid or, or doing whatever, but to recognize that whoever taught you that you're supposed to be perfect has a positive intention. If you can 
figure out a way to tease that out. Go like, okay, what did, like, what did they want for me? Do they want me to be successful? Do they want me to be happy? Um, you know, did they want me to fit in in a particular way? Even if they wanted me to fit in, right? Why would they want me to fit in so that I didn't experience rejection and pain? So they wanted me to be happy. Do I value that? Is that like, you know, so you're no longer thinking about the perfection, but you're now thinking about what was underneath it. Is that a thing that I value? And if it is, can I pull that into my life and let go of the perfection? You know, so like I learned this thing, there was something under it. Can I focus on what was under it and let go of the perfection? So that's one area that I, I like to work with my patients. Another thing I think like in general, the remedy to being a perfectionist is to get curious, you know, so like any place that you can explore curiosity, because curiosity is the antithesis of already knowing. Right. To be a perfectionist or to be perfect, I guess not to be a perfectionist, but to be perfect, you have to already know. And there's no space for curiosity in any of that. And so if you can learn to embrace and explore and appreciate and value curiosity, then I think that that can become the antidote to that perfectionist tendency. But it really is about, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, valuing something different. You know, instead of valuing looking good, it's valuing the growth that it takes to get there. Does that answer your question? Yes. No, it does. And it gives some really, I think, good places to just start digging. Like I I talk a lot about that curiosity as well. And, you know, I was also thinking I've recently studied a lot of Joe Dispenza um, Mm -hmm. in a PhD program where he's part of the curriculum. But, you know, in talking about neuroplasticity and neuroscience, like our brains, are done getting forming new paths by the time we're 35. And if we're, like you said, just focusing on the things that we're good at or that we know and not allowing ourselves to be challenged or to grow and, you know, exploring it with play, like we have the ability to still build new pathways. We just have to do things differently and allow some of that change to happen. And that's where growth and experiencing life differently and all of that is attainable and your hormones balancing too. It's all, all connected. <laughs> yeah. Way. I mean, it absolutely is right. Because curiosity, if we really embrace it, right. is also yeah. the antidote to stress. Yeah. And yeah. then relieving that stress is the invitation then for our reproductive hormones and our thyroid hormones and the other hormones to sort of come back into balance because we're not hammering them yeah. with the stress that we create by, you know, telling ourselves that everything needs to be perfect. Yes. Yeah. It's all one system at the end of the day, right? It's like the beautiful thing about holistic approaches to healing is that, you know, we are all one system and there's no way that we can pull on any piece of the system Mm -hmm. without impacting all of it. So yes, I agree. And I'm glad that you brought that to light. It's very, this is very much a conversation about hormones, even though it doesn't sound like it from this. And I get asked a lot um, because I, I do like an initial hormone assessment, but where I actually look, I don't run labs. I do a paper assessment on toxicity and on gut health and on other things. Cause that's actually what's at the root <laughs> of, you know, and emotional, emotional assessment as well. Cause it's those things that initially got us to where we are. It's not a lack of, you know, levothyroxine or that you need some hormone replacement therapy. It's right. Absolutely. We go there and I know you're there too. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So kind of in, and my other, well, we're going to shift gears a little bit, because I'm curious about your answer to this. <laughs> One of the questions that was on your one sheet for this was the connection between, or I think it was um, money, sex, and hormones. Yes. Oh, no, money, sex, and food. Food, food. Let's talk about yes. that. Let's yeah. talk about food, sex, and money. Um, no, this is, this is, a, I think it's a really exciting topic because, um, in my opinion, food, sex, and money really tap into those primal desires in life and primal needs, you know, so food sustains our body, right? Sex sustains our species and money is like the currency that really sustains our lives. And that's why each of them really tap into these like sort of core needs around security and safety and belonging. And so um, I wholly subscribe to the idea that the way you do one thing is the way you do everything, that you are the common denominator in your life. But I think it really shows up around food, sex, and money in interesting ways. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the way you do food is likely the way you do money, which is the way you do sex, which is to say that if you are very restrictive and controlling and measured about what you eat, then you are likely to be very budgeted in the way that you do money, very sort of consistent and methodical. And you're likely to show up with regard to sexuality in the same way. So like, if there's this part of you that's like, oh, why don't I have this sort of like freedom in one part of my life, then you can look at your relationship to another part of life. I think one of the most common patterns that I see in all three areas is these periods of restriction followed by periods of either like indulgence or binging, right? So I'm going to diet and diet and diet and sort of like suffer for a while. And then I'm just going to go, Oh, forget it. And I'm going to do whatever I want. Right. And I'll see the same thing with somebody who's saving and saving and saving or trying to be really meticulous. And then they're just like, Oh, I, I need the splurge purchase, you know? And And then the same thing that shows up in their, in their sexuality, like sometimes it can be as severe as an affair, right? Like infidelity. Um, Other times it could, you know, it doesn't require infidelity be with your, within your own partnership. Um, But yeah, like these energies are really fluid. Another thing though, which might sound counter to what I just said, but I still think like, when we, when we think like you are one whole, something that I see often is a little bit more of a seesaw relationship with people. So if I used to cope with my life via food and I, and I like, you took that away from me, quote unquote, like the practitioner, right. You told me that I can't have gluten and sugar and, and all the things that I used to sort of indulge in, then you might find that if the energy underneath that isn't resolved, then you'll splurge in other places. So now I'm just coping with spending money you know, like my new way of going numb has just moved to one of these other places rather than actually addressing the root. And that's why I think um, to sort of circle it back to like inflammation and hormones, it doesn't work to white knuckle it. If you don't address the real underlying um, emotional challenge, then you end up playing whack-a-mole 
because you're like, okay, great. Well, now I'm not eating sugar all the time, but I've created this other stress because, you know, like if you're an entrepreneur, I signed up for a program that I didn't need that cost me $20,000. Or like you mentioned, I bought the building. Like I, I let my impulse get out over there because I didn't actually address the real thing. And so like, I spend a lot of time telling people and as somebody who's like works in the naturopathic world or functional health, it sounds really counterintuitive, but I would say inflammation is never the root. Inflammation is the symptom of the root. And the root is the imbalance in your life. That's having you cope in ways that then creates the inflammation. It points to so many things. And one of the things I was actually thinking about as you were sharing that is thinking about addiction, and this is something else I've been learning in like neuroscience and how we really transform through changing our brain is what we actually are addicted to is the emotion. And so like you're talking about, we just translate that addiction through emotion into something else. Totally. So have you read uh, Molecules of Emotion by Candace Pert? No, I need to put that on my list. Oh my gosh. Put that one on your list. I read (laughs) it when I was in medical school, but that's exactly. So Candace Pert, is basically the the scientist who discovered all the endorphins. Yeah. She's like, if we respond to morphine, we must make these things. And then her, out of that research, she realized that many of us get addicted to our anger. We get addicted to our sadness. We get addicted to our stress because our bodies and our hormones release a chemical cocktail in response to those experiences. And we get very like from a biological sense, we get addicted to that chemical cocktail, which then has us act in ways that are reliable to produce that emotion so that we can get flooded with all of the hormones and neurotransmitters that come out of response. Yeah. Fascinating. It's very fascinating. And it doesn't have to be an addiction to like a positive emotion. We can be addicted to the stress. We can be addicted to, you know, berating ourselves or low self-worth, like all of that. And it's just running in the undercurrent. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's one of the patterns that kind of like keeps us stuck is the degree to get to which we get addicted to self-reproach. Yes. You know, self-reproach is something that I've been through 10 million times in my life. I've survived it every time, you know, succeeding in this place. Oh, I don't know. I've never actually done that. That's terrifying. And it's, I have no idea what it produces, but tripping up in this particular way at this particular junction and then beating myself up for it. Oh yeah. I know that one. (laughs) You know, I can do that one all day long. Yeah. And it's that idea of, you know, with curiosity, we're taking on a willingness to step into what we don't know because, you know, we have this realm of the things we know and know well and the things that we know we don't know, but there's this whole other world of things we don't even know that we don't know. And until we can shift our perspective and just have an open mind and tune into ourselves, which is what we've been talking about, yeah. That's, That's not- something I really love about Joe Dispenza's work Yeah, as yeah. well, like tapping into, you know, that emotional place and being willing to go to the unknown, mm-hmm. you know, through a place of creation. Yeah. And it's really about creation. And a lot of what we, I don't know how, I'm just going to share this and I don't know how familiar you are with our energy centers. It's one of the things he talks about in the Eastern world, it's chakras, but you know, our root chakra and kind of the first three energy centers are where our hormones and a lot of things are regulated is through those systems. It's like our gut and our reproductive organs and, you know, thyroid's more at the throat, but creativity is one of the ways that we release that energy. And most of us have become so busy and so focused on perfection. We are not making any time to be creative in any way. And so like, that's one of the ways you tap into 
increasing your energy and starting to improve some of this stuff, but it also involves going within like, and, you know, being willing to do that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's actually a, that's a connection that I make with patients a lot because, you know, like I think like the anatomy of the chakras is really fascinating. And when you think about, you know, that it's, you know, that the fifth chakra, like you said, it's like the house of creativity. What do I express? It requires knowing who we are before we can express and, and create something. But then that's where our thyroid sits, which is the mechanism of energy in our body, but it's also the mechanism of communication. And so when we are afraid to express, to create, to generate, and then connecting it back to food, food is a really reliable way to shut it all down. Because if I'm eating and I'm chewing and swallowing, it's one of the few things that really reverses the energy through that aspect of our body. And so I think many times when we're feeling really vulnerable about what it is that we want to be generating in the world, then food becomes a reliable way of like going numb and sort of like shutting down the conflict that we have around that. And again, like kind of relates back to sex, food, and money, because all of those things require vulnerability. They all require being seen and feeling exposed to really enjoy them fully. Yes. And so then, yeah, there you, there you have it. Right. When we're, when we, when we're like, we long for it, but we're also afraid of it. Mm -hmm. We live in this tension that shows up in our relationship to health. Yeah, absolutely. So good on so many levels, <laughs> it's like, you know, and honestly it can be simple. Like I've always, and I don't know if you find this as the high performer, I'm like, I want the complicated answer, you know, to all this, but a lot of it's just slowing down and tuning into something. And I love your approach with that being food. Cause I've, you know, I've talked a lot about on the show with other guests and, you know, in general, just our relationship to food has become so screwed up over the years with the diet culture and with, you know, this is good for me. This is bad for me. Like all the, and the marketing of food is entirely plays on our emotional state. And that's what drives our decision to eat it. And it's like, Oh no, we're just stuck in this loop. And so the more you can start to break yourself out of that, I'm not saying it's necessarily easy because we're bombarded, but just choosing to start somewhere and starting to heal that. So true. Starting starting somewhere. And I think, you know, stepping away from engineered hyper palatable food Mm -hmm. is a great place, you know, to recognize that like just in the same way that cigarettes were, you know, much of our food source was designed, was like specifically curated to bypass all of our biological systems that say, I know what's okay for me. And I know what's enough. You know, and again, like to let that be an avenue through which we can have some compassion, mm. you know, like I, I have lost touch with this, like with what should be innate knowledge because of a, you know, multi-million or billion, I don't even know how big the food industry is. Right. But this massive <laughs> industry, yeah. teams of scientists that have designed food to bypass my biology. Mm-hmm. And so I can recognize like, okay, I'm going to give myself a little bit of slack there. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to be proactive about making the change, but I'm not going to use it as a reason to beat myself up that like I am here and then to start doing the work. And I loved what you said about simplicity, because I do think that a lot of times trying to make things complicated 
is another way of avoiding the hard work. Like if I just make it really complicated, then it's almost too complicated to complete. Mm -hmm. And then I give myself a pass. If I let it be simple, but then I'm fully committed to it, then there's no excuse to not do it every day, every day, every day until it becomes an integrated part of our lifestyle. And then the next level reveals itself. And the next level reveals itself simply because we're tuned in instead of checked out. Yep. Oh, good. I think we can, (laughs) we can keep going on this forever, but I think we have a lot of nuggets for people to just, you know, ruminate over and, and really. Yeah. And ladies like this is don't just, you know, listening to, I've had this conversation with, with women, like we tend to want to consume all the stuff, but don't take action. So this is one of those things like consume it, listen to it, and then commit to what you're going to do differently. And go ahead and start it and choose one thing, one thing that made sense from today and do it for a week or a month. And, and then, you know, like I said, the next right step will reveal itself. It will. It always does. Thank you for saying that piece. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So in wrapping up, um, how can women listening connect with you if they want to? Yeah. So the best way, um, my website, dawndelaley.com. Um, you know, I have an Instagram and I've got Facebook, but in all honesty, I am not there as consistently, you know, as, as I like to be, but I have some courses on emotional eating. You can find them through dawndelilly.com. I have a course called eat to win, which is really focused on all the ways that our lives benefit by eating well, instead of just focused on weight loss and another, just a, a freebie. If people want to just kind of take the conversation around hormones a little deeper, but if you go to dawndelilly.com forward slash fatigue, I have a free guide that really explains like some of the patterns of fatigue and how those are connected to particular hormonal imbalances, just to kind of give somebody a starting point and like, what could be going on, you know, in the way that I feel tired. Awesome. And I know that's, that's a big conversation and I'll just throw in lady, like everything we're talking about right here is where you start to access your energy again. So hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and engaging in this conversation with me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate your having me here and just having the opportunity to educate some high-performing women on um, ways that they can remain high-performing, you yeah. know, but <laughs> taking care of themselves. I think that's also something that we really have to, like, nobody's trying to make you lazy, right? Nobody's trying to say, become a couch potato, but living your life fully, you know, and just getting the privilege of having this conversation with you is, is great. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Emerge, the health podcast for busy, high-performing women, where we provide you with the tools, information, and inspiration you need to transform from overwhelmed, overworked, and overweight to vibrant, energetic, and on fire. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to subscribe and also leave us a review. Also, I don't want to be working with you on your health only once or twice a week. I want to be in this conversation and in the trenches with you every single day. I invite you to join me in the Emergent Women Community Group on Facebook for the chance to interact with me live once a week and even more information, inspiration, and motivation to transform your health and become the vibrant, energetic, and on-fire version of yourself we all know is under there. Until next time, remember to keep putting yourself first so that you can better serve the ones you love and the things you are passionate about. Mm